Good morning, Maranatha Grace. It is really a pleasure and an honor uh, to be with you. Like John said, my name is Maxwell. I'm joined here by my friend Caitlin uh, down here. I think I can speak for the both of us uh, in saying that we felt very welcome here amongst you, and it's really a distinct honor and a pleasure uh, to be with you. Uh, like John said, I serve as the assistant to the regional pastor in Christ Church Westchester, and uh, it, it really is an honor um, to be with you. Uh, like John said, we, we pray for your church often, uh, and it, it really is a delight to see just the work that the Lord is doing here and bringing people to himself uh, through this church here. So, uh, like John said, we'll be in 1 Samuel 24. If you have your Bible uh, with you and you're following along, if you could keep that Bible open the whole time, we'll be, we'll be referencing um, the scripture back and forth here. Uh, so, I think it's important to situate ourselves here because the story that we'll be looking at today here is situated within uh, a bigger story. First uh, and Second Samuel, these books chronicle kind of the life and times of King David, someone who, if you've grown up in church or you've been around church, you've heard of, of David probably, uh, you know, a mighty king, a, a great warrior, a man after God's own heart. But the books of First and Second Samuel start with God actually raising up the prophet Samuel to judge God's people. And eventually, uh, however, the people demand a king. In doing so, they reject God as their king over them, and you know, God gives them, actually, the desire of their hearts. He gives them a king like the nations. In 1 Samuel 8, we hear that the people want a king so that they'll be like the nations, they'll be like everybody else, something that God's special people shouldn't want, but they also want a king to judge them, to determine right and wrong, to fight for them, to go to battle for them. All things that the God of the universe wanted to do for them as their king over their lives. So God gives them Saul. Saul is tall. He's taller than literally everybody else in Israel. He's strong. He's handsome. He's charismatic. Uh, he's furious in battle. But as expected, uh, having Saul as their king, a king like the nations have, doesn't exactly go how everyone wants it to. God warns the people in chapter 12 of the book of 1 Samuel exactly what will happen if the people and their king don't follow God. Disaster will surely come upon them. And sure enough, this is exactly what happens after Saul takes the throne and experiences some early success in battle. After only two years, he breaks the religious law by offering an unlawful sacrifice he jeopardizes the safety of his kingdom and of his people by not pursuing the Philistines, their historic enemies in the land. He almost kills his son over a foolish vow. And eventually, he lies to God's prophet about his conduct with God's enemies. So he's the king. You know, he's, Saul is supposed to be the guy who is the most in touch with God's will, representing the people to God and God to the people, protecting them. But here he is, and he's disobeying God at every turn. But all is not lost, as God has the prophet Samuel anoint another king, David, in Saul's stead. In 1 Samuel 15, God informs Saul through the prophet Samuel that the kingdom will be taken from him, and Samuel, as well as the reader, barely has any time to breathe as David is being anointed king in the very next chapter. You see, God is so merciful that even though his people put a wicked king on the throne that belongs to God to rule over them, and they land themselves in a world of hurt 
and insecurity, danger because of it, God brings up another king from amongst them, a humble servant after his own heart, who will eventually ascend to the throne and through his faithfulness usher in an age of prosperity and blessing. Now, if we're paying attention, this should all sound pretty familiar and point us to the bigger story that we're all a part of. It's a story about how God plans to overturn the rule of a wicked tyrant, vanquishing his enemies and establishing a fruitful kingdom for the harmony of his people by reigning over them through a king who loves and follows him, a king after his own heart. But today we find ourselves in a part of David's journey to the throne that we don't often talk about. Most of the time when we hear about David, right, it's these great stories of him, you know, slaying bears and, and slaying lions and uh, in vanquishing, you know, Goliath. But today we see a very different but no less important side of David's journey to the crown on the run from Saul, who's doing everything in his power to find David to kill him. He's scared, he's hungry, he's tired. Hopelessly outnumbered, but here we learn no less important lesson. God's king gets the throne in God's way. Let's pray for a moment before we jump into the text. O righteous Father, we humbly ask you now that uh, your Lord Jesus Christ would command his spirit concerning us to give us wisdom and insight into this text. Father, your word is a double-edged sword, and your word is honey. For those who believe in your name and who have sought repentance and forgiveness from sins in Christ, we pray that your word would wound so that it might heal, God. And we pray for those amongst us today who have not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, that this word would do the good work of redeeming grace in them today. Father, we pray that as we turn our attention to your word, it would captivate our hearts, it would capture us in its grasp, that we might be formed by it and live in accordance with it. In your son's name, we ask all these things. Amen. So for those of you who are uh, note takers, excuse me, three points will form our time in the text today. First, we'll see the kings in the cave. Second, we'll be cutting corners. And third, we'll see the tables turned. So first, the kings in the cave. Look with me in verses 1 to 3. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost part of the cave. So here... We have David, you know, the celebrated hero of Israel, who is the rightful king on the run from the tyrant Saul. Now, it didn't take long after David was anointed by Samuel and became loved by all the people for being a mighty warrior that he was no longer safe in Saul's courts. He wasn't, you know, Saul felt threatened by him, and he knew the kingdom was going to be taken away from him and given to David. And so he attempts actually to murder David multiple times. And because of this, David has taken to living in the wilderness with a small band of about 600 warriors. In the earlier chapter of this book, we see uh, that Saul is growing more and more desperate to find David and to kill him. He actually puts a whole city of priests with their wives 
and their children and their livestock to death because they helped David. There we also read that Saul was providentially delayed in his pursuit of David, having to address another incursion of Philistine raiders into his territory. But now he's back on the trail with an elite group of soldiers, and he's tracked David to a small area on the shore of the Dead Sea, on the western shore there. Saul briefly stops chasing David to relieve himself in a cave, uh, relieve himself, uh, definitely insinuating that he uses this place as a porta potty, uh, but also perhaps he's taking a rest there for a while. And we read that it happens to be the very cave that David, and likely a very small group, perhaps close personal friends of that 600, are there hiding with him inside of. Notice here the juxtaposition. We have Saul, murderer, deceiver, blasphemer, liar, relieving himself. And we have the true king, anointed, but not yet exalted, not yet lifted up to the throne, hungry, terrified, so far from his kingdom, in a place meant for animals when he should be in the throne room, in the dark when he should be in the palace. What went through David's mind when he saw Saul step into that cave. You picture it, the sight, the dark cave, the musty smell, the movement of the scree as Saul steps into the cave. What was going on in David's heart? You know, he was the, the shepherd boy, the one who was used to chasing the lion to his cave and killing the lion who had stolen one of his sheep, but now David is one of the sheep. Where's David's shepherd? Who's going to save David? The lion's right on top of him. Well, we can, we can read what David felt in Psalm 57. Why don't you flip over there with me very quickly? We'll just read a little bit of this, but Psalm 57 and, and Psalm 142 are actually written by David about his time in this situation. We can read, you can almost hear this fear in his voice. He says, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He'll put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amidst fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. See, God took David to the farthest point from being king, where David felt like he had no hope at all except God's steadfast love and God's faithfulness. He had no hope for deliverance except God's mercy. But David's life points us also to God's forever king, King Jesus. Now, so many times in Jesus' life did he find himself far from the throne, the Son of God, in the place of darkness, in the place of animals, where he was hunted by people who wanted to take his life. But he was still God's son. He was still anointed with the Holy Spirit. This was his path to his exaltation, just like David's. 
So brothers and sisters, let me, let me first warn you here that if you think you have a relationship with God, but you, you say to God, hey, you know, everything's good between us as long as you don't take me there. You know, we're, me and God are cool as long as God, you know, keeps me comfortable. We, I mean, we got to think real carefully about this. What kind of a relationship with God is that if God can't take you to the very place that he took his own son. But let me also encourage you, Christian, that being in the dark, in the cave, victimized, does not mean that God does not love you. Doesn't mean that God does not care for you. Time and time again, we see in Scripture that those who go after God's heart often find themselves in this exact place. Victims, alone, feeling despair. We must be so careful to interpret God's hard providences, not as barriers to our happiness or moments where God has forgotten to love us and care for us, rather as testing on our way to exaltation. David seems to be the farthest away from his kingdom. By all appearances, it looks impossible that he will get there. But God is still in control. And David knows that God's will is what got him here, And it's what gave him victory over Goliath. God's king will get God's throne, God's way. Because Jesus, as the anointed king, went to the farthest point from being king. He can uniquely comfort and sympathize and provide for his sheep. So remember Psalm 57 and Psalm 142. Friends, cry out to God. Invoke God's justice. Ask for God's deliverance and for his mercy. In the dark, in the cave, write a psalm. Sing praise to God. Cry out to God for his deliverance. Every moment of severe trial and difficulty, even when things are going well in our lives, we're presented with an opportunity to sin, and that opportunity tests the intensity and the strength of our trust in God. Which brings us to our second point, cutting corners. Look with me in in verse 4 to verse 7. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. So David's men see this. You know, they're backed into a corner. They're afraid. They see Saul come into the cave. Saul doesn't notice that they're there, but not only that, Saul begins to kind of, you know, only do something that, you know, you can do if you feel relatively safe enough. He begins to relieve himself, takes a, takes a load off, maybe kicks his feet up, and they're seeing Saul in the most vulnerable position imaginable, you know, and they think, hey, we're never going to get this chance again, We're pretty sure what Saul would do in this situation. It's like they're saying to David, hey, if this isn't the day that God said you would triumph over Saul, I don't know what is. So they say to David in verse 4, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I'll give your enemy into your hand. You know, they're so convinced that this is God's will playing itself out that they just kind of start making stuff up. You know, David never received this word from the Lord that he was going to get to murder Saul, that he was going to get to kill him, and that's how he was going to get the throne. But, you know, who can blame these guys? I mean, imagine, 
they are literally one stroke of the sword away from all of this suffering over. Then they can go home. They can go back and be with their wife and their kids, with their family. They can be safe instead of being hunted like wild animals. One commentator said about this passage, See how apt we are to misunderstand God's providences and his promises. Friends, I wonder, do we ever do that? You ever just start making stuff up? <laughs> Saying things like, you know, God wants me to be happy. You know, I, I, can, I can do this because, you know, God knows that it's just too, it's too hard for me. You know, nobody can be sinless all the time. You know, I'll, just, I'll get one and I'll be good. I'll, I'll tithe a little extra. I'll read my Bible a little bit more. I'll pray a little bit more. Maybe I'll repent real hard. And maybe there won't be consequences. Now, friend, I hope that very few of us have been in a position where trusting God was a matter of life and death. But let me submit to you that whenever you are tempted to sin, what's on the line is really how much we trust God. Will you take God's word and be faithful to your wife, honest at your job, gentle with how you discipline your children, obedient to your parents, even when it hurts, even when you feel like you get the worst end of the deal, when obeying makes you appear weak and vulnerable? Friends, sin always tries to creep in and say to us, this is the moment to get yours. But David has a different idea. Let's keep reading. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. So David rises, and while Saul is relieving himself, David sneaks up ever so carefully. I mean, imagine this from the perspective of David's men. They're like, man, go get him. And they see David walking up there to Saul, pulling out that sword, and they're thinking, man, this is it. We're going to get him. Finally, we're going to be proven right. And David just cuts off the corner of that robe. He chooses not to kill him. He spares his life. I mean, already, this is crazy. This is insane. I mean, you can't imagine the hero of a story finally getting the villain who's been hunting him the whole movie just to spare his life. But it gets crazier. You know, notice in verse 5 and verse 6, Afterward, his heart struck him, and he said to his men, because he had cut off a corner of the robe, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing as he's the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words. So David's conscience is wounded that he even did this. Why? Because David recognizes that he ought not to harm God's anointed. But hadn't Saul forfeited the kingdom? Hasn't David already been anointed? Hasn't Saul been bloodthirsty and a ruthless tyrant? See, David still recognized that although all of this was true, it was still God's will for Saul to have the throne right now, and it was God's will for David to faithfully endure this trial on his way to the throne. And God had not permitted David to harm Saul in any way. So, if David sets himself against Saul, harming Saul, he's going against God. He refuses to do this but by no means. So he says to his men, you know, the Lord didn't permit me to take such means. David doesn't take his life. His symbolic act strikes his heart. 
And then he convinces his men not to harm Saul. So now he's protecting Saul. You know, uh, this word uh, persuaded actually insinuates something more like, you know, he tore his men up. So not only does he not kill Saul, but he's saying to his men, like, if you touch him, I'll kill you because they're ready to go. He's saying, you do not touch him. But how much like Jesus is this? You see, David was tempted to take the shortcut and go against God to get himself to the throne. Friends, Adam and Eve was tempted with the same thing, right? Exalt yourself. Put yourself on that level. That's where you deserve to be, right? Friends, Jesus was tempted this way too, in the wilderness by Satan during his earthly ministry, who said, bow down to me and worship me, and all the kingdoms of the world will be yours. But Jesus resisted him. He didn't take the shortcut. Instead, he chose to go the way of the cross to his exaltation. He chose to go the way to the cross, to his resurrection, to his ascension. Like David, Jesus also rebuked Peter when Peter violently resisted the men who were arresting him when they were leading Jesus away to be tortured. Jesus perfectly refused to do anything unlawful on his path to ascending to the throne as the king over the whole universe. And it's because he was perfectly obedient in all things, even to death itself, that he receives the name that is above every name. See, Jesus loved his father so much and was so confident in his love for him and that his father would be faithful to his promises, that he cared more about his father's pleasure and his, and his father's will than his own. Right? Jesus, on the night where he was taken to be tortured and killed, prayed to God for mercy, and he said, Not my will, but yours be done. He went to the throne God's way, and that way led him to pay for your sin on the cross, to pay for my sin on the cross. Christian, praise God that Jesus was faithful on your behalf. We have to learn not only from David's example, but from our Lord's example, that as God's people, we must entrust ourselves to God. For we have no right to disobey or even grumble against God or those that he's put over us. But now if someone out here is listening to this godly call to submission and would use this as a way to justify their abuse, I must warn you, this verse, these, this passage does not teach that people just have to endure your abuse. If you're here and you're the victim of abuse anywhere of any kind, please go talk to your pastors. Please talk to some of the staff members at your church. Tell a church member. Tell the authorities. Friend, telling someone that you are being abused is not grumbling and it's not complaining. Friend, getting help is not being rebellious. Do whatever is lawfully in your power and permissible before God to be free from your oppressor and bring them to justice. What we're talking about here is whether hardship and trials in life, even matters of life and death, are ever an excuse to sin. Believer, are you looking for an unlawful way out of your hardship? Do you grumble against God when you feel unsatisfied with your work? You grumble and complain against your spouse, against your girlfriend or your boyfriend, 
because you just you need to vent about it to somebody? Do you take the path of sin instead of the path of the cross, grumbling against your school teachers? Practicing sexual immorality because abstinence is too hard, and you're too stressed, too lonely, too unsatisfied. Do you envy your neighbor for their house, their relationship? Do you sin against your government, or your authorities, because it's too bothersome to obey them or to respect them? Friend, does your heart strike you? David's heart struck him. But friend, a wounded conscience is a sign of the Spirit's work. So I invite you to look to Christ in deeper repentance and deeper faith now. If you want to be after God's own heart, you must go God's way. Friend, remember that you too, because of Christ, are on the way to your exaltation. Though all of us will ultimately and decisively be victimized by death itself, you will be raised from the dead and go to God's heavenly kingdom. You will inherit the earth if you are in Christ. And these are some of the works that God has given you to do on the way to your exaltation, Christian, to obey him when it's hard, to be faithful, to put your trust in God in the midst of despair. Friend, it's these kind of works that Christ can uniquely sympathize with you and uniquely empower you to bear. He's given you his Holy Spirit. He's given you his word. He's given you his friends to call your own. He's given you a church. He's given you pastors to help you. He's given you much. Friend, as David's words convinced his men to submit themselves to God's will, will you let the words of this scripture convince you to again take up your cross and follow Christ? to go God's way to your exaltation. So having spared Saul's life, David allows Saul to get up and leave, which brings us to our third point, the table's turned. See, now it's David's turn to arise and follow Saul out of the cave. Let's look at how he appeals to him. When da- afterwards, David also arose and went out of the cave, and he called after Saul, My Lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he's the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. So David's appealing to Saul more like a loyal subject than like someone who he's hunted like an animal. David appeals to Saul as his, as, 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 like Saul's his father, like he's, he's Saul's son. But then he goes further. He shows him the corner of the robe and he says, this is evidence, I don't want to hurt you. This could have been your head. 
This is my proof. I'm not against you. He, then he appeals to Saul with that. The proverb saying, you know, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand will not be against you. Saying, like, look at what I've done. You want evidence that I'm not out to get you? Look, look at this. But then he goes further. He calls himself a dead dog. He calls himself a flea. He's harmless. He's weak. He's small. He won't hurt Saul. Rather, he invites the Lord to judge. He invokes God's vengeance. And how does Saul respond? He weeps. He recognizes, because of this, that David is more righteous than him. And where he did David evil, David did him good. He didn't kill him, though he was his enemy, and the Lord gave him into his hand. He blesses David, saying, may the Lord reward you. And he knows that David will be king, that the kingdom is to be established in David's hand. See, this is such a remarkable testament, not only to God's providence, but to God's faithfulness, and also to David's obedience. Remember, Saul knows how this works. If you obey God, you get to keep the throne. If you obey God, you get to the throne. So he's looking at David, and he's like, yeah, I can see it as clearly as he's holding up that piece of my robe. That kingdom's David's. That belongs to him. And so motivated by that, he actually appeals to David for mercy. So now it's flipped, right? Saul was the one hunting David. Now Saul's the one begging, hey, don't kill all my kids after you take the throne, please. And then our conflict resolves for now. David swears this before the Lord to Saul. Saul goes home and David's men go up to his stronghold. And David doesn't get the throne or the crown now. He still has a long way to go. But let's not miss this. God's king gets God's throne God's way. And what is that way? Friends, it's a way often marked with suffering, with pain. But it's also a way of mercy. It's a way of righteousness, obedience. Friend, think of how Christ took his throne when he ascended to God's right hand. The rightful king living righteously yet hunted for his life, refusing the temptation to ease his suffering and to ascend to his throne before his appointed time. Out in the wilderness, in the place of animals, darkness, only a small band of loyal friends who eventually deserted him, pleading with God for mercy, down to the level of the dung in the heart of the earth, only to rise up from the grave and show you what? Mercy. He shows you his hands and his side, like David showed Saul the corner of that robe, saying, look, I could have taken your life, but I spared it. I've not sinned against you. I, I, Christ took the penalty that was yours on himself. He invited the Lord to judge. He invited the Lord to avenge. And God avenged himself for you on him. Christian brother and sister, Christ went that way for you. Christ walked the path of total faithfulness amidst suffering to ascend to his throne, not just as an example, but so that you can too. You too can walk the path of faithfulness amidst suffering. You too can obey God even when it hurts. Friend, it won't be easy. Remember, Christ has given you much help, friend. Christ gives you much grace. Christ shows you much mercy. He's given you friends. He's given you pastors. He's given you fellow church members. He's given you his word. He's given you his Holy Spirit to bind up your broken heart. When oppressed, beaten down, low, in the dark, in the dung, cry out to God and invoke God's justice. Friend, on the way to your resurrection, 
and exaltation. This is the way. Confession of sin, the ordinary means of grace, extraordinary things. They work extraordinary miracles in your life as you turn from sin and again commit to following God. Taking comfort with your friends, your church members, your pastors, crying with them, being comforted by them. Friend, this is the way. Humility, mercy, obedience. Christ's resurrection and the resurrection itself is the greatest hope for those who love God, but it's the greatest fear for those who don't because God's king will have his throne God's way. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I'd like to close by just communicating a couple things to you. First, we all have to understand that because we're all sinners, we all do violence to the kingdom of a holy God. We deserve to die a traitor's death and to go to suffer in hell forever. Just like everyone here can in some way relate to David, victimized by suffering and pain, loss of life of family members, eventually the loss of your own life, every one of us here is Saul. Every one of us here is a victimizer of the Son of God. Every one of us here is a sinner, a rebel, a tyrant, wicked, treacherous, murderer, adulterer, hunter of the rightful king. But God shows you mercy, friend. This service, unbeliever, this sermon, friend, this, this word, these people around you, this is proof that God is a merciful God. Friend, will you come to Christ? Will you turn from your sin and repent? Will you trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, believing in him for his grace, believing that God raised him for the dead, from the dead for your justification? Friend, will you turn and, and follow Christ? If you want to learn more about what it means to repent and believe in the gospel, please come find me, come find one of the pastors, find one of the members at this church, friend, and begin to walk on God's way. Friend, do what we're about to see proclaimed here in front of us later on today, identifying with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, and with God's people through baptism. Friend, you will see a proof of God's mercy here today in the waters of baptism as people are going from death to life, as these young ladies are proclaiming before all of you that they have put their trust in Jesus and that they believe that he will raise them from the dead on the last day and they will inherit God's kingdom forever. What a wonderful God we serve, friends. But now if you're here and you're not a Christian and you're hardening your heart against God, let me just warn you before we close. Friend, who do you go out against? Who are you pursuing? Who do you sin against? Friend, the, it's the Lord of glory. It's the humble king who became a dead dog, who became a flea, who became sin, who knew no sin for you. Friend, if you are here and you're hardening your heart, I, I want to again plead with you to repent and believe. For on the last day when the Lord Christ comes to consummate his kingdom, friend, he will plead his case before God the Father and God will deliver his Lord Jesus Christ out of your hand, but you will not be delivered from Christ's hand. Friend, there will be no mercy on that day for those who have not repented and believed.
But friend, there is still time for mercy. Christ still shows you his hand and his sides and says, come, come, repent, believe, repent, believe, trust. Come, go God's way into his marvelous kingdom with this company of believers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for our word, for your word that you've given to us. God, we thank you for the word, the Lord Jesus Christ, the word who became flesh for us. Father, we thank you that he lived the life that we couldn't live and died the death that we were supposed to die. And because of that, he shows us such wonderful love, such wonderful mercy as to save us from our sins, give us new hearts that we can obey you, and to be raised from the dead on the last day to inherit the universe remade and fit for glory. Father, we pray that you would use this word mightily in our lives to convict us of sin, to point us to Christ, lead us in deeper repentance and deeper faith, leave us in, lead us in deeper love for one another and in deeper love for you and your Son and your Holy Spirit. In the name of the triune God, we pray. Amen.